Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week 41 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. This week we're talking about Edward Scissorhands, the 1990 Tim Burton-directed movie. It was based on the story uh, from Tim Burton from when he was like a teenager, as well as a 70-page treatment by Caroline Thompson, who then went on to write the screenplay. Burton hired her to to write this up, take his idea from his childhood or from his teenage years. And uh, when he was in pre-production on Beatles, juice uh yeah he really wanted the story told and then following batman and the giant success that batman was in 1989 he had the juice to get this done and fast-tracked he had the script already working since beetlejuice he kept caroline thompson and and that's how this kind of movie kind of all happened it you know he went from zero to hero kind of overnight so Nice. Well, it was released December 7th, 1990. It had a budget of $20 million, but it did very well at the box office, Mike. It made $86 million. Pretty impressive as these movies have gone. For sure. 1990, and I didn't do what the adjusted is, but $86 million in 1990, I mean, I'm sure that's a couple hundred million in... That's like 30 years ago now. Oh. 31? I mean, we're quickly oh, approaching right. the 31st you don't have anniversary. To fix my math. I'm just saying, it's <laughs> even worse than you remember. I remember I remember I remember when I used to refer to 1990 as like 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Now we're at 31 years ago. Jeez. If someone says 30 years ago, that's 1970, without a doubt. Like that's 30 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm going to read you the one, no, nay, two sentence plot summary. Are you ready for this? I, I, I'm holding on. I'm bracing myself for two sentences. <laughs> An artificial man who is incompletely constructed and has scissors for hands leads a solitary life, period. Then one day, a suburban lady meets him and introduces him to her world. <laughs> no mention of Christmas. I would like to raise my red flag. <laughs> red flag raised this is definitely one of those movies that is not an obvious christmas movie on its face as we tick down here there's going to be a couple of those as we approach Ooh, the end of the checklist spoiler warning, oh spoiler i'm not warning. i'm just dangling i'm just putting that fishing pole out in the water seeing uh get my floater out and uh, oh see, see what people are biting yeah floater. all of that okay. came out much more racy than i had any intention of right? it being it sounds kind of like poop it's not good at all oh yeah i guess so i was i was thinking more you know <laughs> i think fishing. you're thinking bobber but okay this is the most burtony of burton movies this is actually the second tim burton movie third this is the third tim burton movie we've actually yeah. this guy has a thing about christmas time he 
does, but it's not a very straightforward traditional thing. It never Christmas. is. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. I mean, Nightmare Before Christmas is his most straightforward Christmas movie, and that's about Halloween guy. So, right. uh, <laughs> you know, so you have Batman Returns, you have you have Nightmare Before Christmas. This movie comes before all of them. Let's talk about casting here because we have Johnny Depp as Edward Scissorhands, and he, for me, is just quintessential Tim Burton. He's got to just be in in Tim's mind. I feel like he's like this is just him like he is inside johnny depp's body it's wild because this is the movie that introduces them to each other tim burton doesn't even know johnny depp's work on 21 jump street which is all johnny depp really had done up until what? this point he doesn't even know his work on 21 he jump doesn't. street he's, he's kind of like an unknown to him but they kind of they meet they he he casts him and he's like yeah this is this is the guy and they actually become really good friends during the shooting of this movie and obviously go on to spend the next 20 plus years making movies together this is the first of what ends up being eight movies that they make together Um, but it's born here though he's like an unknown in fact the studio the casting in this movie is wild caroline the the people that were proposed to play all of the different roles in this movie is is kind of mind boggling the mind wobbles to to uh quote i think that's mean girls um (laughs) but uh yeah the studio actually 20th century fox they actually were really pushing uh tom cruise that's insane to me. Could you even imagine? No. <laughs> and so so he meets with him, right? Because it's the one that the studio really wanted. Even though he had a lot of juice coming off of Batman, you know, he still listens to the studio. They're giving him the money kind of thing to make this movie. And so he sits down with Tom Cruise and, and he's just not impressed with him, A, to begin with. Doesn't see him for this role. And B, Tom Cruise also has, you know, sinks himself a little bit. One, he kind of insists... That if he's going to do the movie, it has to have a happier ending. This movie famously has kind of a down ending, really, or at least a somber ending. And Tom Cruise wanted it to be happier. This is a little apocryphal. It's it's reported in a lot of different places, but it, it doesn't seem like necessarily maybe it went down the exact same way. But I guess Tom Cruise asked a lot of questions in their discussion, one of which is, how does Edward even go to the bathroom? Tim Burton was very turned off as, as lore goes. Tim Burton was very very turned off by this kind of questioning this this idea that you clearly just don't get what this movie is about mr cruz no yeah. thank you well and especially day, since sir. we just came off of batman returns and i mean we discussed that one like how like no one could use the bathroom like remember everything right. with like catwoman and everything like nobody could get out of their suits to use the bathroom i mean this is not tom should have done a little bit of research before he came in to talk about this i love all of tim burton's early work i'm a big fan of beetlejuice i'm a big fan of batman i love batman returns like we talked about in uh, when we covered that episode this is my favorite burton though uh this movie I watched a ton of times as a kid. I, I'm pretty sure I saw it in the movie theaters. I, I'm I'm like 95 percent like clear. I have a memory of watching this in the movie theaters to begin with, and I remember watching this on VHS and watching it on HBO when we had HBO after we got cable. Yeah, I watched this movie a lot. This movie really resonated with me. I don't. I I just took to it more so than Beetlejuice, which I love. But this was this was my Burton, and I've always thought of it as a Christmas movie. 
I don't know why. It's not like I watched it at Christmas time. It wasn't certainly that wasn't a movie my family would gather and say it's Edward Scissorhands time. You know right. that that wasn't a thing, and and it's not a movie that gets played in rotation at Christmas time necessarily. But in my head, it's always been a Christmas movie. Okay, so this was a middle school movie for me, and I think I saw it at a movie theater called The Bing, which was just like a one screen movie theater. Great memories there, like very like first date kind of movie theater, and it was just like this old little theater and edward scissorhands i think that the reason why we both associate it with christmas in some way is just the release date we would have definitely seen it in december i think that and if you remember the advertising they consistently would show the part with the snowflakes and like coming into her hair and coming down so it gave you this really like i don't know like ethereal angel-esque it's christmas time feeling even though when you actually watch it i mean i think we're gonna really dissect this i don't know that we're gonna land that it is a christmas movie johnny depp i can't see anyone else playing edward scissorhands and and you know i mentioned tom cruise he was the studio's front runner tom hanks was offered the role he turned it down to make bonfire of the vanities a notoriously bad movie and a horrible flop gary Ullman is offered the role he turns it down this is a couple of years before he makes bram stoker's dracula he turns it down because he didn't understand it and then he sees the movie years later, he sees the movie when it comes out, and he's like, two minutes in, I totally got it. And I regretted it my whole life. Jim Carrey was considered for the role. John Cusack, she, uh, he was the one that Caroline Thompson, who does the screenplay, really wanted. William Hurt, Robert Downey Jr., Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson campaigned himself. He was leaving phone calls and messages for uh, Burton to, trying to get to play this role, which is a wild alternative multiverse theory seeing michael jacks play play this role i mean sort of wild but i don't know kind of right right like this sort of hermity guy who's misunderstood i don't know that could have really worked of all of those people you said michael jackson actually could have probably would have would have worked out you know i think of michael jackson in this role and do you remember this music video i think it was for leave me alone he delves into all of the conspiracy theories and all the tabloid rumors about him oh yeah he's like on the roller coaster right yep yep it shows up the roller coaster and his relationship mm-hmm. with Bubbles the Chimp and the <laughs> sleeping in the hyperbaric chamber. All of that, that video, when I read that he was campaigning for himself to do this movie and, and Neverland, like they could have probably shot this at Neverland, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I was like, I kind of see it, but also so much baggage would have come yeah. with that. And I think Burton sensed that he never returned to calls. He actively ignored Michael Jackson's pleas. So never, never even allowed himself to sit at a table. Maybe because in 1990, you know, Bad is out in 88. Michael Jackson's still riding pretty high. Maybe he feels if he had sat down with Jackson, this is total supposition. I wonder though, if he feels like if he sits down with Jackson, maybe he feels like he has to hire him to do the role, Mm, you know? Yeah, good call. Uh, Way to get get around it. So the counterpart to Johnny Depp in this movie is Winona Ryder, who was actually the first person cast for this movie. Is this a Winona Ryder that you think of when you think of Winona Ryder, this blonde-haired kind of bully cheerleader type? Completely no. Um, But I do think of, like, Winona Ryder as a human to be, like, the female version of Johnny Depp. Like, I think they're, like, two halves of the same coin here. So I I 100%, like, see them together as, like, a couple for this movie. But the styling for her of being a blonde and everything threw me. The first time I saw her, I was like, whoa, (laughs) you are not what I was remembering. 
I know, and that was all on purpose. And, and apparently, I mean, she she gave a lot of interviews after this movie where she talked about how she had trouble connecting to the character because of the blonde hair wig that she had to play uh, had to wear, and there's the character that she was playing. Apparently, she was bullied. Her high school years in her head are marked by being bullied by the kind of people that she and the character Jim play in this movie. There's actually a story she gave doing interviews after this movie came out and it was kind of a hit and people were interested in her. Some young ladies came up to her, I think it was in a coffee shop somewhere in LA and said, you know, Winota, we're such a big fan. Would you, would you sign, you know, give us an autograph kind of thing. And she looks at them. She says, you don't remember me. And, and they're like, well, you're a Winota writer. She's like, yeah, but I also went to high school with you guys and you used to torture me in the bathroom on the regular. Ew, that's terrible. Yeah. And so, and, and so she was kind of like, you know, you know, suck it and, and like, and didn't do it. So she felt a little vindicated that this movie was a little bit cathartic in that it allowed her to face that but she had problems though and apparently tim burton was tickled pink because you know he works he worked with her in beetlejuice and i think lydia is the truest form of a nona writer ever put to screen in my head anyway what nona writer from this from this age is lydia from beetlejuice the very goth you know black hair black nail mm-hmm. polish dark eyes and tim burton delighted and and would would laugh himself hysterical whenever she would come on the set in this blonde hair kind of look because it was so bizarre to him watching her look like this so <laughs> yeah so it was not just you that was thrown off by this apparently they also uh, were definitely uh, put off by the look you know who I was happy to see? Diane Weist. I totally love her. And love this was her. like a heyday for her. Do you remember like Little Man Tate and like so many other movies that she was in during this time? I was, I have a distinct section of like slice of pie in my head. Parenthood, all these things that Diane Weist was in that I'm just, yeah, she's just, I'm just all over it. Uh, Diane Weist for me, I love her too. Little Man Tate, well, that's, that's a good call. But for me, she's always going to be V from footloose she's always going to be the loving mom and very understanding mom from footloose kind of the same character that she's playing here i that's just the vibe she gives off i love that she's an avon calling door-to-door saleswoman here but i love when this movie kicks off and she sees edward for the first time she doesn't well she recoils a little bit but she doesn't run and scream she doesn't treat him like frankenstein's monster she offers him astringent for the cuts on his face and she she's like a stray dog like just takes him home and treats him just so lovingly and kindly it, it moved me but it's everything i think of when i think of diane weist and maybe that's formed because of this movie and because of footloose but yeah this was this made my heart happy seeing her here in this role i had to explain the avon calling whole role <laughs> to my kids they were like what is she doing what is an avon avon calling is not that long ago like i can yeah. remember only like maybe 10 years ago i would still get like they didn't knock on the door anymore but they would leave like their um little catalogs they had these mini catalogs and they would like rubber ban them with like something heavy in it and like toss it like further up onto your porch so that you would like get it and it wouldn't blow away or anything it wasn't in the mailbox and i i mean i was like laughing to myself like man they really did like do away with that but people would like love that stuff i think in in some way of like being able to like 
kind of do these makeovers on the fly. Like there was something to this that was like very yay and and exciting that the Avon lady was coming. But this was like at the tail end, like obviously in this town, I love when she's going door to door and people are like, I never buy your stuff, Peg. Like we've had this conversation a hundred times. Like I'm totally not going to do it. Like cliche, like you've completely saturated your market and everyone who's going to buy has already bought, you know? The concept though still lives on. Everyone listening to this knows at least three different people who are selling things to them, either through Facebook groups or friendship chains. Uh, You know, there's so many of these kinds of things of commission based. They're called MLMs, multi-layer marketing businesses. That's what they are. And not like that, but like mom based business. Boy, have I heard that a lot in my life. Well, yeah. And this idea that you are going to sell to your friends and encourage your friends to begin selling to their friends and so on and so on and so on. And this comment commission base, this thrives. This is still everywhere. It's just not door to door. It is not Avon necessarily. But the concept, if you gave it a different name, and I'm sure we could all think of a couple different names of, oh, yeah, no, my friends have tried to sell me that kind of product before. That's what Avon calling is. But with the little pill hat and stuff, I mean... She's so from another time. This whole neighborhood is from another time. I love the aesthetic. Yes. it's it, This movie instantly puts you in such a specific vibe and time and place. The phone chain gossips, yes. the ladies who lunch gathering on all the lawns and knowing everyone's business, the garish colors. This is a real, this was actually a real housing development in Tampa that they oh, filmed wow. in. <laughs> yeah. Well, they painted the houses. Part of the deal is when they moved in, they basically took over this small housing uh, development. They painted all the houses these colors. Some of the people actually chose to keep the paint colors after the movie was done wrapping. Many chose to have their paint like reverted, but some were like, yeah, I like that. But come on, Tampa. Come on. We can all That's do better. So funny. That's too funny. Yeah. Reportedly, this movie put pumped in $4 million into the Tampa economy during its filming. Wow. That's impressive. That's very impressive. That's very impressive. Um, I, You know, the thing about Diane Weist, and this is just, I think, part of the love we have for her. There's a great quote that Burton has because he... Thanks. He he points to Diane Weist for this movie really getting going. He said, uh, this is the quote, Diane in particular was wonderful. She was the first actress to read the script, supported it completely, and because she is so respected, once she had given it her stamp of approval, others soon got interested. So on top of the Burton juice, you also had this Diane Weist-like legitimacy uh, stamp, which totally makes sense for this time of her career for sure. She also has this really fascinating nuance to her where it's like she is seems so kind and so warm, but then also just a hair sinister. Like there's something just a little bit about her that you're like, you need to watch your back. And it's not necessarily in this movie, but there's something about her like in like Little Man Tate. I don't know if you remember, but she's not. She's not not the villain, you know, like Jodie Foster's the mom and Diane Weiss is like, you know, she's got all these good intentions for little man Tate. But there's this a little bit sinisteriness about her, just a little bit. And I think that that works so well in a movie like this where you want to have just a little bit of uncertainty of how she's going to behave with Edward and um, with her family and everything. There's just a little bit there. That's interesting. I never really thought about it, but you're right. But I think I think maybe that's from she's so prim and so proper. And those people often have a dark side. Well, it's the kind of person that when they snap, 
they snap in a way that leaves scars kind mm-hmm. of thing. That's what I mean. Yeah, no, I see that. I see that. But but she never loses it here. I mean, Edward, she doesn't. She's Ed, cool. She keeps it. But that is kind of the suspense, though, because this movie kind of leads you down. This movie is drawing heavily from Frankenstein, the Frankenstein story, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera. Very um, Beauty and the Beast, my kids kept saying. This is so beauty and to be, especially at the end where they literally are kind of like the villagers coming to the castle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, or or Frankenstein or young Frankenstein if you're into comedy versions of Frankenstein. <laughs> Do you know how much I loved you were talking about the housing development? I loved how you didn't have to actually leave the neighborhood to really get to his house. It was just the end of the cul-de-sac just got kind of craggly mm-hmm. and then it just went right to his house. Like <laughs> it was really funny because you didn't have to like go through these woods. It wasn't miles away. It was just like just this lot happened to go up to this like haunted looking mansion <laughs> it's very funny i love that like surrealism about all of his work but you know what though but there was also something relatable about that too i remember growing up in queens i grew up in a very in, in the, i grew up in flushing in queens which is very uh, square you know city planning kind of all the streets were parallel to all the streets and you know you could all addresses were by avenue and street and it was very ordinary it was very rudimentary but then there would be this outlier house you know in the neighborhood that kids just avoided or parents kind of silently said don't go near that house it was at the end of my street i i can picture it in my head because it was eventually taken over i lived across the street from the entrance to uh flushing cemetery the house at the corner of my street at the end of the street became like a headstone like selling business like they Ooh. took over the business that would sell the headstones for people that were using the cemetery across the street. So, and, and it was old and it wasn't painted and it wasn't upkept and it had, it didn't have lightning and black clouds over it, but it had that total vibe to it that it was almost a dare to like go up their driveway or to, you know, ring and run kind of thing. It had that kind of vibe to it. So this, the house, the creepy mansion at the end of the street. Yes, it's very exaggerated here, which has some high fantasy and humor to it, but it also felt kind of relatable. Like, that at one place you just don't go to when you're a kid that feels like out of bounds i totally agree i it's just so funny the idea that it's just like transforms just like at the sidewalk it's like then it's just like dark dirt like right there like it's just funny when well when she's striking out left and right right she she just moves that mirror like her rear view mirror kind of thing and it like it's like (laughs) and the the thunder cracks kind of thing she sees the castle in the background that's very young frankenstein (laughs) Uh, Anthony Michael Hall. I'm you. You like me? I'm so sh- crazy to see him like this. I was like, "What are you doing? You are supposed to be the the nice kid, right? Or the nerdy never kid at the very one. list? Yeah, at the very yeah, least, right? But never this guy. Jim was an absolute jerk, and I was really surprised at like his language. I guess because this movie, I would have said, could have almost been G rated, but mm. then oh no, add Jim in, and things get like super questionable, like. PG-13, and then, like, at times I was like, whoa, with the words you're saying. I mean, I'm giving a heads up to parents. They use the R word. There's, like, a lot of stuff that Jim brings in that I was not remembering. Also of a time, though, too, right? I mean, the... Yeah, but again, you would have thought this was kind of a benign movie. You know, you might have thought, oh, this is a story of an outcast, you know, that kind of thing. But people should know, like, "Mm, there's more in this, and it is outdated in that way. Right. Well, you know, that's kind of a Burton trademark, though, right? So think about, like, Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, yes, is definitely a scarier kind of movie, but it's, it's cartoonish kind of scary, 
But then there's like a suicide, you know, plot of, you know, in Beetlejuice. What? What What left turn did we just take? And, you know, it, 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 this movie winds up with uh, Jim, like, and, and, and Edward fighting to the death and, and him skewering him and pushing him out of a window kind of thing, kind of in self-defense, but also kind of like, I've had enough of you. And it, it gets dark. It gets violent. And Jim is a bad guy. I mean, he, he and it was shocking to see Anthony Michael Hall for me in this role i always will think of him forever from the breakfast club and so seeing this just what four years later four years later five years later it was like what like my head was exploding i didn't remember him really like the character i remembered but it being anthony michael hall was like a disconnect in my head completely he was 16 candles in my brain for me and 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 maybe even vacation and and like back to those things like just not any of this like being a bully just did not like click for me i was like who is this guy now there are some people that were considered for casting before they settled on him and i think some of these names maybe even work better as far as brat pack like disconnect it wouldn't ca- it wouldn't have caused the dissonance i think that it caused for us maybe that made it more effective though you know maybe that was what anthony michael hall was looking to do right maybe he was like looking to get out of that suite maybe role, so I, I mean i think it worked for me in that, uh, in that regard uh crispin glover was a big front runner he's uh he's the dad in in back to the future sean astin christian slater Kiefer sutherland and Rena river phoenix they were all considered for the role of Jim. I think Kiefer could have worked. I don't know about the other ones. Kiefer, I think, could have. He had that, um, oh, gosh, that kind of scarier little vicious side to oh, him. That sure. totally worked. You know, this is, he, I feel like he might have been a little too old, though, right? Because I think 1990 is the same year as, like, Flatliners comes out. Ooh, yeah, then that would have been pretty old. Right, and I feel like he's he's too old there. I mean, it's kind of wild here. Uh, I mean, Anthony Michael Hall is 22 and feels like a little old for playing a teenager. Uh, Edward Scissorhands, who's supposed to be about their same age, at least that's the way it's made to look. He's 26, actually. Mm, but he's so slight. He's so little. Very little. And and his eyes are doing so much more acting here. And his, his physical acting makes him feel so much younger. He feels like a toddler in so many ways. Um, yeah. But I think Christian Slater would have been an interesting choice, though, because this is like pump up the volume era Christian Slater, which kind of has, you know, an edge to it. See, but that's too edgy. Like, like, like Kiefer would have had to have played like a slicked down hair version of himself. Yeah. Like you have to still think that he could live in this neighborhood. Like outsiders or uh, Kiefer. Wasn't Kiefer, wasn't Kiefer the older brother in Stand By Me? Am I remembering that? And Kiefer was. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Kiefer was like he would have had, he would he could have played the same kind of character he played in Stand By Me. Like they, a bully. I think bully comes easy to Kiefer. But for you sure. have to you have to run this weird little thing of like of still being able to be in this neighborhood and still being sort of preppy bully right. not not like switchblade bully which mm. i think that christian slater and Kiefer run too close to switchblade bully and so then you're like going too far that way crispin i think you could have done something with because he absolutely has that kind of nerdier preppier kind of side you could have played with sean astin he's so sweet i would have been sad to see him be a bully I, that's, I think he turns it down. I think they actually offered him the role and he didn't want to be, he didn't want to be brushed. He didn't want the gym brush 
in his world. And I think that's probably the right call. Um, you know, he already had maybe what Anthony Michael Hall was looking to get to, and maybe he didn't need to do it. Crispin Glover is, uh, was notoriously kind of a nightmare to work with. If you listen oh, to, yeah. yeah, if you listen to some of the stories from back to, from making back to the future, he was a very eccentric guy when it comes to yes, everything, to <laughs> so, yeah. everything, to everything, yeah. lots of picadillos, lots of quirkiness. He eventually sues back to the future for using his likeness without his permission. Sure, as one does. <laughs> for for when uh, it's the second movie when they go to the future. Yeah, and they, they use like a flashback scene. Uh, well, they also use like a stand-in and like using kind of his voice. Yes, yes. Uh, and yeah, he he actually sued back to the future. Like, dude, what are you doing? Like, they, a mess. they made you they made you rich <laughs> and famous. What are, what is happening here? Oh yeah, I don't. I mean, that was wild. But yeah, I mean, you know the the dad figure. Can I just tell you? Okay, so it's Alan Arkin as yep. Bill, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, for him, I was so worried about him and he turned out to be completely benign but i was on edge with him that he was going to do something say something i don't know what i was so nerved up about him he was like so nothing you know he was he was helpful he he tried to give good advice he he was very understanding to have this boy come live with them yeah and, this is I a was, mom and dad we'd all want right isn't this the kind yeah, of a perfect mom and dad like scared about the both of them like there was something very stepford about them that made me nervous like they were going to you know he's going to wake up in the night and have with like a ball gag in his mouth and i was just spooked like what are you guys going to be doing I think the stepper feeling, and that's a perfect description for it, I think comes from the neighborhood setting. It comes sure. all of the plastic. This movie feels like everything is in is in uh like fiesta color where like plastic. And I think that's where the edge comes from because you're seeing the negative side, right? It's uh uh Joyce. Uh, where she frames up the sexual harassment charge against Edward because he, like, you know, he freaks out with her advances kind of thing when a chair breaks. You know, like, the the, the duplicitous, uh, seedy, insidious nature of this neighborhood is what I think makes them also have that same kind of vibe. Like, these people are too good to be true, right? All these people on there, all these people put on the, this plastic face of kind and neighborly, but they're all kind of horrible people. So obviously, uh, the mom and dad, Peg and Jim, are also at some point going to reveal themselves to be truly nasty. Even the guy who comes up at the barbecue, the random old man who's mm-hmm. uh, knocking on his legs and he's trying to encourage... Yes. You know, don't ever let anyone tell you have a handicap. He calls up a cripple later on in the movie. No, I know. There's a lot of language. I'm just, I again, parents, I'm just warning everybody that there's some antiquated language in here that definitely heads up. You shouldn't turn it on and leave the room. Right. Well, your kids are going to have, depending on your age, I think, I think 12 and up probably get this movie without any kind of help, but. Yeah, but if they go into school and say that. Sure, that's true. Trouble. So I'm just saying like, heads up, this isn't a children's movie that you can just totally be like, oh, well, because Jim is going to say some things you don't want to hear back at Christmas morning. You know, but I think he represents great the duplicitous nature of this neighborhood that the the two-facedness of how he treats Edward, the 
the two-facedness that they all treat Edward, right? He's all a toy for them to play with and love and their haircuts and the topiaries and the dog haircuts. They're all great until they decide that they don't want to be great anymore. And then they treat him like he's literally like Frankenstein's monster and, you know, literally hunt him down. I mean, they, they don't have torches, but like, like a mob descend upon the castle at the end of the movie. That, so I think that's why we're feeling like Diane Weiss and Alan Arkin are going to turn on him at any given moment. And they never do. They're just good people. They never people. do. Yeah, they actually are. There's just something, yeah. They, I think that sticky, sweet kindness part, I, you know, I, I think we're all, like, trained to be a little bit suspicious of that. Mm. And so, you know, again, I don't know. Dads in particular, I don't know this sweet dad. I don't know this man in real life where he's just totally just like, yeah, bring this guy in. Like, I've got nothing negative to say. And, like, all this, I'm like, okay, what is he going to, like, do something in the night? What is going to happen? But yeah, you're right. I mean, it stays on the up and up. Thank goodness. I think that this is a great time to talk about the genesis for this movie. So a lot was written about this. So Edward Edward Scissorhands comes from a drawing that Tim Burton did when he was a teenager, uh, which he says reflected his feelings of isolation and being unable to communicate to people around him growing up in very suburban Burbank. That's where this setting comes from. This this is this Tampa housing development is a stand-in for his growing up in Burbank. um, he says the drawing that he did of of this Edward Scissorhands depicted a thin, solemn man with long, sharp blades for fingers. Burton stated that he was often alone as a teenager and had trouble retaining friendships. This was a quote. I get the feeling people just get this urge to want to leave me alone for some reason, and I don't know exactly why. So this movie is him, like so many of his movies, putting like his isolation and feelings of loneliness and abandonment, and even when you're among people not fitting in, that's all being wrapped up in the Edward and the people in the neighborhood. This is what his growing up was like to him anyway, from his point of view in Burbank. It's interesting because he says the Alan Arkin character, the Jim character for him is the most terrifying character in the movie because of that uneasiness edge that you yeah. never you never know where they're going to come from. He's like, th- this guy was everywhere for me growing up in Burnbank, and it terrifies me. Like, he has still has, like, PTSD when he talks about, like, this character <laughs> in this movie kind of thing. Well, it's that it's that sappy sweetness that you're like, I just don't know a dad that's like you. I just don't. I don't know this person. And, and so the fact that he met all these, like, I don't know what, these, like, super mellowed out or whatever they are, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's a creepy feeling that you're like, what is your story? <laughs> Um, you know, it was it was fun to see Conchata Con, uh, Conchata Farrell Conchata Farrell uh, in this movie. I I would go on to know her from Two and a Half Men, where I always liked her. Actually, I feel like she Do you remember passed her away. From ER, yeah, she did. Do you remember her from ER, the original ER? Uh, yeah, 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 for sure. So uh, so it was kind of I was like oh yeah she's in this but like a- Alan Arkin was kind of one of those characters I remember the dad mm-hmm. uh, I, like I for some reason I very much remember him stapling the uh, snow the fake snow to the roof like yes. that definitely stuck out as like a scene in my mind but Alan Arkin not someone I would have guessed was the dad playing this until I rewatched it but uh, some of the people tapped for him I'm curious what you're thinking about this. Dustin Hoffman, he was the one that they originally offered the role to, um, but he was doing Dick Tracy, so he couldn't do this. Uh, Harvey Harvey Keitel, Harry Dean Stanton, Tom Skerritt, and Roy Schneider were all considered for uh, the role of Bill before they settled on Alan Arkin. 
boy, I don't even know. I, none of those people work for me. I think that there's something important about him being a little bit, I'm going to say ordinary. So any of those men would have stuck out too much to me. Like they would have been too recognizable, too recognizable is the best word I can say. They, they have like certain characteristics and there's something about the way that Alan Arkin is where he's just sort of just vanilla. Like you don't necessarily, he doesn't stick out of the crowd and that's kind of important to this guy and how he kind of functions in this family. The one casting that we haven't talked about yet, and and we have to because I think it in so many in so many ways it's a heart of this movie, a cookie heart, if you will, mm-hmm. is Vincent Price as the inventor, as Edward's erstwhile father. I I don't know what your relationship is with Vincent Price or or if you have any kind of connection to him, but for me that is a large part of this movie. In my head, his role and his role with Edward is much more outsized in my memory than actually comes through in the movie, but I was curious how he hit you. I mean, I know Vincent Price from so many things and almost more almost I want to say like less as like specific works and more as just this like larger than life persona that he is, you know, he, he embodies that kind of like we were saying with Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder, like they don't have to be in a role to be exactly how they are. Mm -hmm. And Vincent's like that. Like he's got that like nutty, mad professor, scientist type kind of vibe all the time. He could just be in like CVS and you'd be like, that guy is inventing something creepy in his basement right now. And like, you just know, he's just got that kind of just stink lines coming off of him. Everything about the fact that he was the inventor was was fantastic, perfect, spot on. I agree with you. He played a much larger role in my memory. I thought that we actually delved a lot more into how Edward Scissorhands became who he was than we actually do. That was like a whole part for me. And partially, I think, because of Nightmare Before Christmas and how, you know, there was like a lot with Sally um, and and how she became who she was. And there's a lot going on with with her inventor. And I think that, you know, Tim has done this before. You know, he has this character uh, relationship already for all of us, I guess. And so for me, I was like, okay, what else are we going to understand between Edward and the inventor, essentially? I mean, what was your relationship with Vincent? What do you remember of him? So for me, my my relationship with Vincent Price starts with Thriller. Mm. Uh, he narrates Thriller and he he I <laughs> I love Thriller. I was a big I was a big Michael Jackson fan growing up, a uh, big fan of his music. Uh, from the Jackson Five, I, I mean, I had forty fives. Like as a kid, my parents did. I guess really had forty fives and albums of the Jackson Five, and I, I remember you know borrowing Jessica Handy's album of Thriller. She was this little redheaded girl I had a crush on in the first grade, and she let me borrow her Thriller album, and like it has stayed with me forever. Like that memory, she let me borrow it for like two oh, weeks. I thought you meant like you didn't give it back. Like no, no, no. I, I, I very did very bad. <laughs> no, no. I would have felt horrible. No, just like a oh, very very. Weird. Very like I was very like a Charlie Brown with like the oh, the girl little red haired girl little red haired girl right and so but she let me borrow her Thriller album and like it was a big deal to me because I had my sisters wouldn't let me ever use theirs so like this was like I got to like oh, play gosh. it I know I was, sisters they were five and seven years they didn't want me messing Such with their a stuff pain, right? you know but using like my parents hi fi in like the living room like I listened to this for like two weeks that I borrowed the album like over and over like, again from another century. I love that. <laughs> You have a hi-fi in the living room. My parents never had a hi-fi in the living room. And they had records, don't get me wrong, but they were upstairs, like, you know, put away in the closet. 
fascinating oh, that you're no. dancing. I can see you like dancing to the Jackson Five. Like I can see you doing this sort of like version of the Running Man. Like I, it, I have it in my head so clearly. But you are from another land. I tell I, you. I, listen, I, I mean, I've told you about listening <laughs> to like Pepino the Mouse and Dominic the Donkey, like laying underneath my Christmas tree. Like, well, well, that's all land. on records. You know, all of the uh, everything I know about the Beach Boys comes from listening to my parents' records. Like, I would just take them. Same on that front, yes. You know, but yeah, I, I, whatever they had, I would just kind of listen to because I didn't own my. F- I didn't own any music personally until I was. 10 yeah but all of us just did the same thing are you making like mixtapes off the radio like i mean no not then not then no that wouldn't come until like uh, until like after 1990 like in the 80s the only music i had was all from my parents albums or whatever my sisters were listening to like so after 1990 like you were you were like blazing through middle school with no i had no musical knowledge my first (laughs) my first albums that i owned uh were i had uh money for nothing Chicks for free, sure. Yep, sure. That was the first 45 that I actually <laughs> owned myself. And my first tapes that I wore out were Billy Joel's Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2, uh, which, I, again, I inherited. I just wound up in my possession somewhere through the osmosis of music in my family. And uh, the Flash Gordon soundtrack, which by Queen. <laughs> so those were the first music. So I had a Walkman, and I just wore those tapes out oh until they didn't God. work anymore. But so all of my, most of my music in the 80s all came from just listening to whatever my parents had as records anywho so vincent price thriller used to terrify me though and i oh agreed i couldn't listen to it at night Uh, if it was nightfall fair i still don't listen to it at night there was a rule like because i i mean i had some accidents because relating to that song and Uh you know killed people or something in the night no like (laughs) wetting the bed ish accidents oh no because you didn't want to get out because you're spooked someone grab your leg waking up from a nightmare because of the video the music video it's a scary video yeah so there was like a rule like michael is not allowed to listen to this because you all have to deal with whatever the nightmares are that comes from it and that's all because of it's in price but it, it it didn't it didn't turn me off to it like i was drawn to it i liked it it just the images in my head listening to it you know as the record would spin and just kind of your imagination because we didn't have cable i didn't get cable until 87 you know so just listening to the album i didn't know the music video i just knew vincent price and michael jackson's voice from the album and so it just terrified the bejesus out of me so that's how i know vincent price but burton actually is a bad i mean he's older than us obviously but his first movie he ever makes is a short film called vincent about vincent price it comes it's like 82 or 83 that's tim burton's very first movie ever is about vincent price this guy is a lifelong idol and inspiration for him his all of tim tim burton is a child of vincent price in that way this role of the inventor was written specifically for vincent price the problem is actually he actually originally did have a much larger role uh his his emphysema and his parkinson's disease had progressed so poorly he was actually in really bad health uh Mm. by the time they shoot this film so they actually had to drastically cut his role he physically just couldn't do it anymore this is actually his last motion picture appearance he has one more tv appearance before he passes away but this is his last movie he appears in is is the role of the inventor here well i'm glad we got him here and it's it's wonderful 
grateful that, you know, Tim was so inspired by him that he could do such a good job in actually honoring him. I think that the small parts that he is in, they are still very fascinating. I mean, everything with how he did the inventions, like, you know, obviously we can see that Tim's got a whole thing. He's very Chris Columbus in my head about how he likes to do the uh, the Rube Goldberg biz. I like love the dough. Those. Oh my God. The I Rube Goldberg too. biz. Is that an interesting fun. little thing though, that they like have those in common that I don't know. I bet you could search out different directors or writers or creators who enjoy that exact shtick. I bet we would like all of their stuff. Robert Zemeckis. One of the things yes. that always stands out for me for Back to the Future is the Rube Goldberg machine that starts off yes. the movie. You know, we're, we're watching we're watching the thing make the coffee and, and how uh, we feed Einstein. And how we feed Einstein, right. It's the, on, the, like... slop, the slop <laughs> of the can is just like overflowing. <laughs> the fact that he both lives so much larger in our head from this movie is a testament to how good he is in this movie and how good him and Johnny Depp are together. They, they feel like children, right? He, this feels like a child and father kind of relationship. When he passes away and Johnny or, or Edward is just kind of standing over him, looking kind of confused. And remember, he tells Peg later on, he just didn't wake up. Like, it just melts your little heart. This is this little wee wee, like, just, you know, he doesn't know what happened to his creator, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There, this scene, I want to play this, uh, this clip. This is, for me, epitomizes everything that is great about Vincent Price in this movie, just line delivery wise, if nothing else. Let us pretend that we are in the drawing room and the hostess is serving tea. Now, many numerous little questions confront us. Should the man rise when he accepts his cup of tea? May lump sugar be taken with the fingers? Mm, no. Uh, is it good for him to accept a second cup? Now, should the napkin be entirely unfolded, or should the centerpiece be allowed to remain? It is so easy to commit embarrassing blunders, but etiquette tells us just what is expected of us and guards us from all humiliation and discomfort <laughs> humiliation and discomfort <laughs> he sounds like keenan thompson i think keenan thompson sounds like him i is know the but thing. that's so funny the way he says it that's so cute uh, mm-hmm. and it, it's just such a sweet and it, it's he's talking to this half-finished torso i mean Edward doesn't even have legs at this point and he's giving him these these manners, manners because manners matter <laughs> i love all of that caroline it just it cuts right through me the high fantasy of this movie i think is a large part of what for me plays into its christmas moviness Ooh, you're starting to poke the bear on this one okay uh, well <laughs> I, I mean i think you have to i mean this movie does take place at christmas kind of but again this is we we've down to like our string of these i feel like recently this christmas done in a sunny climate kind of mm-hmm. area now it's a tampa housing but we know from our, our trivia here this is actually supposed to be like burbank or a stand-in for burbank christmas is accompanied by slip and slides and lawn chairs and and topiaries that never fade right, right. So how do you do christmas time for that and it's such a delicate balance there's something very perverse about christmas in in california it just feels unnatural <laughs> to me in so many ways and perverse. i think i think this movie is also kind of hinting at that though there's something in insidious there's something unnatural about this about this area that this 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 
creature, this creation, is more human than so many of the characters and settings of this movie. I love that you said it that way. I think that that's perfection. Part of it is that because the area itself does not lend itself to what we think the Christmas aesthetic is, having to have this like fake snow like stapled to the roof or trying to do this like this facade all the time of like where you are and who you are and what's going on. Yeah, I mean, at least Edward is who he really is. Like, like it or not, like this is who he is through and through and everyone else is kind of like playing a part for the most part only the thing is is like that's the thing about the boggs family like i actually don't think they're that fake no they are genuinely nice people that's where the weirdness kind of lies you well know? that's why you're suspicious of them right because you're yes. you're expecting them to be like everyone else but there's a mm-hmm. reason why peg is doing avon it's not because she's trying to make money i mean i'm sure that's part of it but remember think about how she treats edward when she comes upon him she knows she's not making money off of this weird scissor-handed young man who who speaks in such a slight voice no she takes her makeup and she goes and uses it to help him right away and later on like she's she's you know she keeps giving him facials and makeovers right she, yes. she, you know and it, because she wants to help him that's who these people are remember it's 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 jim on the roof putting up christmas decorations and stapling snow and they're throwing the christmas party no one else in the neighborhood has christmas decorations up the boxes are the edwards of their neighborhood they are the outliers they are they are and they're the ones who are trying they're really really trying everyone else is sort of like just kind of like settled in their own little their world whatever it is and they're all different worlds we have like like esmeralda like her world is like completely different than everyone else's worlds uh esmeralda a great little (laughs) by olan jones what a weird character that i just i guess i read that there was a musical uh, stage adaptation made of this movie and apparently the esmeralda character has a much increased role in that story but what a weird what a weird little uh uh character she plays here though the character olan or the actress uh olan jones she's actually doing the organ playing she actually wrote the music and is actually doing the playing in the scene where she's like pumping on her organ when edward comes (laughs) comes outside her window that's super impressive wow wow (laughs) uh i mean we could get into the christmasness of this movie i feel like you're chomping at the bit to to dash all of my childhood dreams oh i am not i am not gonna do anything i mean well i would love to hear i mean i I really want to hear why you feel it's a christmas movie i i come in here open-minded i am not thinking any which way i i said it at the beginning and and i don't know if you actually heard me say it i want to have this conversation because i want you to tell me the christmasness of it because i think that it's easy to just say no it's not move on i there's something here i just don't quite know what it is i okay so here it is so it's tough to peg this as a christmas movie if unless you're thinking about it because one christmas doesn't even appear until our one hour and 15 minutes in we're two-thirds of the movie in before you realize it's christmas time not until it's christmas time and they're getting ready to have their christmas party uh do you even realize i think that it is christmas time here in this neighborhood so that's off-putting but once you do there's i think it kind of i think it kind of goes into christmas overdrive one on top of the 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 decorations you know you have the very kind of famous this is the trailer this is what i think you even said at the top of this everyone thinks of is uh, winona ryder in her all-white outfit uh you know dancing in the snow i'm using snow in air quotes it's the ice 
it's right. the ice shavings because uh, Edward is carving an ice sculpture in the garden, which I love the book end of that because at the end of the movie, he's still doing ice sculptures and making it snow. But And he has one of the topiary ice sculptures that he has in his in the castle is of Winona Ryder in mid-dance. Like he captured her angel dance in, from the movie in an ice sculpture at the end of the movie. And I kind of loved that this idea that even years later, he's unaged, but he still remembers her, you know, from this time it captured kind of like in her, in his, in his memory. I, I think the themes here are, are love, right? There's love and family. This movie is about the Boggs family taking in Edward, this unlikely loving creature uh, who turns out to be extremely sensitive and and with an extremely tender hearted, right? Uh, feels horrible when he feels like he hurts Kevin, the little brother. He he breaks mm. into Jim's house only because uh, Kim asks him to do so, right? It, their whole yeah. thing is we can't tell him that it's your house because he won't do it. He confesses at the end, I knew it was Jim's house. I did it because you asked me to because she because he loved her and it was love at first sight and she treated him with kindness and so many other people were just trying to use him and he got that he got that they were using him and that he was different from them but the boxes accepted him they didn't make him feel different they didn't treat him differently right jim gets him drunk down in the basement uh you know because girls are so crazy when he pops the waterbed yeah. um you know he's not like what were you doing to girls my daughter so right yeah. right exactly let me tell you I mean, you probably never got a lot of experience with teenage girls up in the castle kind of thing they're crazy let's get drunk kind of thing you know like none of them i mean kevin takes him he treats him a little bit like a pet right he takes him to, to show and tell but he doesn't mock him none of the bugs mock him none of them uh they don't treat him like frankenstein's monster they don't treat him like the beast they treat him like bell treats the beast and the father treats the beast later in the movie they're they're just wholly accepting and loving of him okay okay i'm listening for the word christmas but go ahead well i mean that's the christmas idea of family right a family and love and coming together and doing what you need to do this movie is steeped in fan high fantasy and is very magical this idea that it gets it gets introduced the end but you have to think back to the beginning of the movie where the little girl is going to bed the granddaughter and old kim is sitting down to tell her the story the little girl starts off the movie by asking why does it snow and so she says, well, I guess it all starts with a pair of scissors. And you kind of forget about that because then the movie gets rolling and, and you're in this high fantasy world. Um, uh, but it comes back around to it at the end where the little girl says, "You, Grandma, you should go up to him. I'm sure he would remember you. And she's like, no, I'm an old woman now. The little girl says, you know, how do you know he's even still alive? And she says, well, because it never snowed. Bef- it never snowed here before ever came down from the castle. Ever since he came, it has snowed every year. We cut back to Edward and he's he's doing massive ice sculpturing, which is causing it to literally snow in this town. His memory is being kept alive. He's magically transformed this place. And if not the town, maybe they are still all horrible people, but he definitely transformed the Boggs family. He His magic brought snow and joy and love into their life. He transformed Kim. She was a bad girl running with a bad crowd, making bad choices. And you, you like to think that based on how it seems at the end, Edward forever held a place, this unrequited love place in her heart kind of thing. That's extremely magical. And that's something you can only do ice sculptures at, at, at you know, wintertime. Um, the idea of the hands, 
uh, Vincent Price, when he passes away, is giving Edward uh, an early Christmas present, the unrequited Christmas present that never gets to go, right? Because he gives him hands, but he doesn't get, he passes away, he dies on the floor, and Edward stabs the hands and ends up mutilating them as as the inventor falls to the floor. That's a Christmas time. That's a Christmas present. Now, yes, could it have been a birthday present? Sure. But I think the whole theme of being excluded and treating like a monster and treating differently and then finding these people, the, your tribe that accept you, I feel like it hits particularly at Christmas time. The idea that you need to not be alone at Christmas time. Imagine Edward going through this season alone year after year and not having anyone for a little brief time he had family he had love he had acceptance you have the police officer right another instance of magic why did that cop has no reason to let edward go off edward looks like he might be dangerous but he knows right. he's a soft heart he shoots the gun in the air and he says he's dead you know he lets him go and there's so much high fantasy and magic in here uh that i think is particular to the season i don't think it would feel right if this was being done in the summer because this is already a sunny place that doesn't feel right you know what i mean <laughs> it's a sunny place that doesn't feel right I, that was I a lot I, I just talked probably like for five minutes straight but that was that's kind of like I'm my case it's, it's, I'm it's, totally it's, listening it's not an easy pin it's just it's a movie that when i think about it makes me think of christmas it makes me feel it makes me think of pulling the ones you loved closer together and and keeping them in your heart if you can't actually be with them you know him and edward and kim never get to really be together because he can't physically hold her right with not without effort not without taking the risk of literally hurting her or, or making her bleed he cuts her hand i think a couple of times in this movie always by accident he's a soft heart but that idea, like, you know, she, he knows that she loves him, even if they can't actually be together. That, that all, it all feels more powerful setting it at Christmas time. I think at any other time, this doesn't feel special i don't think you even get this story necessarily right you certainly don't get the magical christmas elements the ice sculpturing but i feel like the the themes of isolation and finding people who care and accept you versus those who would shun you and use you and treat you poorly it all feels heightened at christmas time okay okay all right i'm listening to you i'm listening to you okay I don't know. So for you, when you think about this movie, now having watched mm -hmm. it again after so many years, what are your themes for this movie? What's your takeaway from this movie? Let's back into it that way. Maybe we can get there this one that way. <laughs> so my themes would have been things like being an outcast and and being brought in to this world where where it's assumed you would be better off if you came and you and you fit in and you make all your efforts and you even for a short period of time, like you almost have like a 15 minutes of fame kind of portion. The amount of times that Peg has him cut her hair just to continuously tried to praise him for something and her hair is like an inch long by the end um, because there's the continuously cutting her hair there's this whole element of of how isolated he was and scared and everything and once he became you know this much more accepted person but then you have the fall of of you know what just because there was this idea that you'd be better off with everybody it's loneliness in a group, I guess, where he just still didn't really find his people. Um, and he was better off to go back up to where he came from because he really couldn't get along with everybody here. They didn't get him and he couldn't really be 
who they wanted him to be as much as he tried. And he really did try. He had, he had like all these talents and, and skills that they appreciated and, and that was all okay. But there were so many other parts. I mean, I gotta say that whole part with the neighbor coming on to him very graphically, that was another like heads up to parents. That was one of those ones that if you think you can sit down with a younger child, you're, there's going to be a scene where the neighbor that was pretty surprising, uh, and went further than I thought <laughs> it was going to go. Um, well, that's so- where when he, when he rebukes her, when he runs away because they fall over, then, mm-hmm. then she, she turns around and, you know, accuses him of, you know, sexually uh, or attempting to rape her essentially. I mean, really is what is what he spreads about her, what, what she spreads about him in the town. Right. So all that, all that again, you know, I see what you're saying and I agree with you that there's something a little different because I hear you about the coming together. I hear you about that part, but ultimately he's not with them. He he is not with them at the end, but think, remember, he makes the ice sculpture of, uh, of her uh, dancing, right? He has mm-hmm. the topiary of the hand, that beautiful topiary of the hand uh, out in the garden that he's tending to. He looks happy. He looks genuinely happy and, and fulfilled at the end of the movie when he's working on his ice sculptures and then the topiaries out in the garden. That is a far cry from the scared little boy hiding in the shadows when Peg finds him initially at the start of the movie. You get this idea that he he has been living a very timid, scared life since his father passed away in front of him uh, with his shredded hands. And, and I think that's the effect of the movie. Yeah, they can't physically be together, but that short time that they spent together, the, the love and acceptance that, jo- uh, that Peg and Jim and Kim and Kevin showed him... I think filled him and and changed his life forever in a very positive way. See, interesting because I would say that it was sort of them, but it was actually sort of like leaving them and having some sort of self acceptance where he was just like, I am different. I'm not like them. I'm not a part of their family and I and I don't belong there and I'm still okay about that. If I wanted to extrapolate that out to be like a Christmas movie, I would say then there are people who choose to celebrate by themselves or with their own traditions in their own way that they don't have to do it the way that everybody else does it. And that's still okay. You can still have whatever your version of an ice sculpture and your version of your topiary hand. And if that makes you happy and that's who you are, he actually isn't a part of their family and he's not a part of their group and he's still whole and okay. And I think maybe if if I'm going to push to the Christmas movie part, I'm going to go with that because I think the whole idea of most of our Christmas movies is that you have to have this togetherness. You have to be with everyone else or else you're somehow not celebrating correctly, if you will, or you're not enjoying yourself. But he enjoys himself all by himself and is perfectly okay being like that. And it seems like Kim, you know, goes about her life saying like, I can't, I can't go back there. I can't, we can't be together. This is just the way it is. And so there is that sort of element of like, you can appreciate it from afar and you can have all that stuff, but you're not actually together. It's, uh, it's completely a different story. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with you that they're not phys- not physically together, but I think the time spent together, even for a short amount of time, I think is 
is transformative for all of them. She's telling the story as a very old woman as if it happened yesterday. That's not mm-hmm. something that if you just have a chance encounter with someone that you remember in that kind of detail. This was this was a transformative moment for Kim. When, when whatever unseen way that transpired in the in the decades that passed from the setting of the movie to when she's telling her granddaughter, whatever happened in Kim's life was put on a path because of the short couple of weeks that she had with Edward. And Edward at the end is, yes, is he ultimately better off? I mean, I think Peg makes this case to Kim uh, towards the end of the movie during the Christmas party that never was, you know, he may be better off, you know, up in the castle, like, because this world is not going to treat him fairly. They're always going to be coming at him with pitchforks and torches. But we showed him loving kindness. You know, when he runs away after he accidentally kind of attacks Kevin, the first thing he asks Kim when he sees her is, is Kevin okay? He's, he, he hold, he's holding holding the boxes in his heart at the end of the movie. Yes. Is, is I think he is happy and contented and he is accepting his, that he's alone physically because I think his capacity for love was, was filled by the void left by the inventor dying and what he got from him. I think that Boggs love over that couple of weeks, I think changed him and filled him and, and, and transformed him. That that's a powerful message about the importance of, of finding people who do love you, even if you can't be together. Circumstances happen. Sometimes Romeo and Juliet don't get to be together. That doesn't mean that you don't hold them. It doesn't mean that it, it you you know, uh, it doesn't transform you in a way that maybe you're not even aware of. But when you go seventy years later to tell a grandchild about a story from your youth, it comes back to you. Think of Rose and uh, Kate and Leo from Titanic, right? When yeah, old old yeah. Rose is telling that story, that's a story that happened that she only had a short amount of time with him on the boat. But that that story feels so powerful when she's telling it as an old woman because it transformed her in that short amount of time. She's Rose is Edward Scissorhands, <laughs> you know. But so that's a romantic movie. And that I agree with you. I think this is a romantic not, movie, but that's not a Christmas movie. I mean, it's what everything you're saying is about love and and this very like you know romantic sense of transformative love and all that kind of stuff. And I agree with you. And I think Titanic's a great comparison. Also, nothing to do with Christmas. Um, and so I think like that's you're so right. I will lean into it on the side of having your own traditions and your own way of living and your own way of celebrating and being satisfied as a version of Christmas. So that for me, I can say like that could speak to somebody who like doesn't enjoy the group version of Christmas, doesn't enjoy all that stuff because for whatever reason, there's something, there's an obstacle for them in some way where they can't join in. Maybe it's a physical thing. Maybe it's a mental thing. Maybe it's an emotional thing. Whatever it is, they don't enjoy the gathering portion is somehow it's difficult for them. So if I kind of think about it like that, I can think about him having a good life alone and that being okay by him. Does that make sense? Oh, no, it absolutely does. I, I think, I think I am still holding on that this is a Christmas movie in the sense that it, the way the movie unfolds, the aesthetic, the coloring, the setting, the vibe of this movie, the feeling of this movie, it doesn't work if you put it at any other time of the year. It, it it has a specific tie to maybe okay and maybe not even to christmas but it has a specific tie to winter this movie doesn't work if if you don't get that snow scene 
it, as a romantic movie, but this movie doesn't snow hit it. Like snow, it's it's the, it's, it's magic. The, it's the it's magic. Okay, it's I the magic. It's the magic of it, though. It is snow. She's telling the story to this little girl as as this magical event that Edward literally brought snow to our town. Like he permanently changed the world because it didn't snow before he came down from from his castle. Like this movie has a, a high fantasy magic quality to it that they don't hit you over the head with. But if you're sitting there and just letting it wash over you, you walk away with, man, I want to go drink hot chocolate and I want to like curl up in front of a fire, which again, maybe is not necessarily Christmas, but has a distinctly winter time feel to it. Watch this movie in May or June and it's going to be like, it's not going to hit you the same. It's not. But I challenge you to say, watch it on Valentine's Day and find it very loving and sweet and kind and and full of a of a non traditional love. Where you know the the two main characters don't end up together. The family didn't save the day. You know all the things didn't really work out. But still, like you said, there's all this transformation and everyone is willing to sort of love each other and accept each other in a different way. I think beautiful. I think it's a wonderful message and a wonderful story. I I just I I think that we could watch it at another time. You could watch it on New Year's Eve and feel like it was like transformative and loving and all those things. So I think maybe, maybe Valentine, maybe Valentine's Day. I don't think New Year's Eve has the right feeling to it. There, I, I, only because it's like it's the same. It's like vortex energy, right? It, it's the it's like an equinox. It, the reason Christmas happens at, at, around the the winter equinox. It's it's like uh, there's like an energy that happens. And now, does this work as a Valentine's movie? It probably does, actually. But I don't think that necessarily means that you can't watch it also as a Christmas movie. Of course not. But I mean, I think even the ones that we have said are questionable about Christmas, like, let's say, Anna and the Apocalypse. Could you watch that on Christmas and enjoy it? Absolutely. But is it exclusively a Christmas movie or is it like definitely this is the genre it fits in? No, we all agreed. Like there's other times you could watch this and enjoy it. And I kind of feel like that about this. Like you're right. It has a huge heart. And I think we associate that with Christmas because you know that it's so sweet. It's so kind. It's so generous. Yes, I agree. Those themes come with Christmas, but I mean, when you said the aesthetic and stuff, I mean, you just said the Boggs family is the only one that decorated for Christmas and stuff. Like, I don't know what aesthetic is so Christmassy. It's a sunny, tropical, California-looking day. But it feels fake, though, because it feels so fake, though. It feels like the real mood is the vibe at the castle. It feels like the real season is the season at the Boggses. It feels like you're in the Truman Show the rest of the time. the, 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 The fake nature of that neighborhood, of the those neighbors is what makes Edward and the Boggses feel like they're in a Christmas movie to me. Okay. Well, fascinating. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I just see it working at other times. I, I really see it being a, a wonderful Valentine's movie. I, especially, I think if you're, I think honestly, you could watch it at any time of year. If you, if you feel like I just can't make friends anywhere, nobody understands me. I, I feel like, nobody gets me and you could watch this and you could be like you know what nobody gets edward except for the Boggses on some level but he's still okay he doesn't require everyone's full acceptance and full understanding in order to be a happy 
guy, you know, or a fulfilled person, you know, he can have his own projects and do his own thing. And that's okay. And and I think that that's a really beautiful message that that is difficult at the Christmas at Christmas time. I think if you if you're willing to pivot that way a little bit and say like, well, there's certainly people out there who have their own reasons why they don't love you know, a big family gathering or don't love a big, you know, whatever, a Christmas office party or something, but maybe they have their own ways of doing things and they have their metaphorical castle that they like to go to and they can be most themselves. Love that. Love that. You ready to do some fast facts? I am. This is not an official fast pack, but I was watching the movie and I stopped and I, I think I even sent you a screen capture of this. When Edward uh, stabs the hands that the inventor is giving him as the inventor passes away and yeah. kind of like mutilates them, the mm. one that would make the left hand falls on the floor. If you freeze frame it, it looks distinctively as if it is in the shape of the uh, I love you hand sign for, you know, the ASL hand sign. I love that. That's so sweet. And totally like very perfect between the two of them as like a last message. Uh, last words. Last words matter, people. Yeah, you never yeah. know when it's going to be the last time. Always say you love, uh, always tell the people you love that you love them before you go to bed because you never know. You can never know. I, you know, speaking of words, do you realize that Edward Scissorhands only says 169 words in this film? It's so little. <laughs> it's so little. And every single one of them is not said above this this is this <laughs> is he's as, so sweet. as edward gets there is a scene that makes me melt uh, and i remembered it and it's such a tiny scene and then when i saw it i squeed a little bit when they're going into the burglary when nasty jim is making him uh you know be a, an accessory to the burglary he yeah. stops and he starts to trim the bush outside the house he just can't help himself and it's such a sweet little little boy moment like he's walking by and he sees like there's like a little sprig out of like place and he kind of snips at it and i think it's jim comes back is like for god's sakes you know stop it and he's just like i have to though like I, I see, you know you ever see like a little kid little kids do this all the time like they'll walk people walking by something randomly and see something and just like pull at it just to yeah. trim it or make it because it doesn't look right to them it, it's a very it's a very sweet little moment so. see and this okay i'm just just let me step to the side for a minute i also think that for special needs families there's something to this with within the autism world and i have mm. two kids with autism where where there's moments like that you have all the time where they just see the world differently and they react to things that you don't even notice and i think that even if you watched this movie with that kind of feeling of like maybe my kiddo doesn't fit in all the time with everyone a hundred percent of the time but it doesn't mean they can't have a quality life where they're happy and healthy and 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 satisfied and content and maybe they do need to retreat to their metaphorical castle on the regs but maybe there's a happy you know in between so i think there's like moments like that i read when i was uh, prepping trivia for this movie i read a couple of different places where in the years since this came out uh, especially when autism became a more well-known and understood uh diagnosis this movie uh became a popular movie for people with autism or, or families with people with autism in their families to watch just as a way of helping frame the experience for other people to understand that, that Edward himself is, is, has been kind of championed by the autism community as being a depiction of seeing the world differently and maybe not the way you see it, but it's no less valid kind of uh, approach um, to, to making people understand as kind of an education tool. I love that. And I didn't even know that, but that's just like my life experience is like drawing me to this as like, I could see how this could explain it to a lot of people. 
staying in that same scene where the inventor dies, uh, you know, we, we mentioned that Vincent Price was in bad health uh, at the time. By the time he's filming this movie, he's in he's in the, the later stages of his life. And he actually fainted under the hot studio lights uh, while they were filming the scene where he actually dies. And uh, Tim Burton, allegedly the cut of him laying on the floor in the movie is actually the cut that they were filming when he actually fainted. And it just visually hit so realistically. It's the one that Tim Burton went with. And but obviously there's there's an irony in here that this is his last time on film and he, he faints while doing his death scene. There's something very kind of macabre about that, but also feels very Tim Burton right seals very on brand for Tim Burton so yeah so when you watch that scene that's literally Vincent Price having fainted speaking of the macabre Edward's hair is based on Robert Smith of the Cure's hair now again this is another one of those apocryphal trivias apparently not only is Robert Smith the inspiration for the hair Robert Smith you know the head of the Cure but apparently Tim Burton before approaching Danny Elfman actually approached Robert Smith to do the soundtrack for this movie Um, but the Cure was in the studio studio finishing an album and so he couldn't commit to it tim burton went back to the danny elfman well and this is actually the fourth movie at this point that they had done together let's see if i can name them they did peewee's they did peewee's big adventure beetlejuice batman and now this was their fourth movie that they had worked on together so another danny elfman score I love that. Danny Elfman is so it's, it's he's so completely identifiable. The second I mean, it may take five notes and I'm like, this is Danny Elfman. <laughs> I love that. How cool must that be to have that talent to be so recognizable? You know, uh, Tom, Tom and I are doing a lot of music trivia these days. He's uh, he's testing how well I know 70s and 80s music because I think he is fascinated these weird songs that he doesn't know there are certain bands i've learned from doing the trivia there are certain bands that just have such a sound that even if you don't know the song you know the band right away and danny elfman is one of those composers john williams is, is obviously i think one of the best versions of this too but danny elfman especially it has just a sound you're right within a few notes you're like oh that's a danny elfman or a danny elfman inspired sound if not an actual danny elfman score so and and it doesn't it make you think of tim burton I mean, oh, yeah. They're, they go they're, hand in hand. They go there's, so there's hand There's that in hand. little, that little bit of just like quirkiness to it. A little bit. Of, he's that right mix of like a little bit of spooky, a little bit of like surreal, a little bit of like, um, just like, am I seeing this quite right? That I, it speaks to me. It speaks to my children a lot. Like they are very Tim Burton in their hearts. Like they really see things just like Tim does <laughs> and wish <laughs> that they lived in that neighborhood for sure. And they would have something wild going on on their own homes. So I would love to see what your kids' topiaries would look like. That's got to be a quiz somewhere online. Which 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 uh, Edward Scissorhands <laughs> topiary are you? See, it wouldn't even be like that. I would just give them a hedge and some scissors, and for sure they would do something with it. They would not just do like a box or something. They would do something wild. It's. Uh, I would add another word into your description of the Danny Elfman sound. Yeah. It's also a little bit of circus. Yeah, there's it does a, there's have, a like, dark little... circus vibe to it, but like energetic, like something's going on, you know, like there's that dynamic. It's not like it's like it's definitely like it's got that little part, though, because, you know, sometimes with spooky music, it can just sound like 
that anticipation scariness portion, but it's like empty, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have that energy. It's just like, what's gonna happen. This has, like you said, like that, that energy is already there. People are already doing things in this music. Like everything's happening. You've entered the carnival, the wild carnival, but you're here, you know? Yeah. And it's moving you along too. Even in his slowest pieces, it's still carries you along and it's never going to be long before you get back to the kind of like be and he uses he uses a lot of voice a lot of uh you know of the also that like the chordal the chordal like ah like kind of eyeing sense yeah there's just a whole sound there but yeah the danny elfman as soon as soon as one of these movies kicks in you know this is one of those movies i love i love when studio logos get screwed around with um this actually happens in batman Returns. We talked about it in that episode that we did. This movie starts with it snowing over the 20th Century Fox logo. That makes me so excited right out of the gate. Even if it's a movie I've never seen before, but certainly one that I've seen gets me extremely excited when uh, when the studio logo is changed for a movie. And never more so than when it's a Tim Burton has turned it to snow uh, kind of thing. Uh, I'm very, very excited. Red again. I'm, I'm a weirdo. Um <laughs> No, not a weirdo. You know what I think was cool? I also, speaking of those topiaries, I thought it was really fun that some of them found a permanent home in New York's Tavern on the Green. Super, really cool. And that they aren't these like big, heavy plants. They're actually. They're like a metal frame that they just kind of dressed in greens, fake greens. I think that that's super neat. I think that that's really fun and that they're like light and movable and everything. And that also that the, the haircuts that Edward gives those dogs are real. Yeah, a little sad that the topiaries weren't real. I they're so fun. I love topiaries. I'm a big fan of them. I I, I used to have this monkey one that was so oh, really? funny. Yeah, it like hung out of the tree, but the squirrels kept eating it. They would not stop. It was like a chimp. It was such a fun topiary. I mean, if you give me like a like a like a hedger, you know, and not like a big oh. bush, like I'm gonna go have fun with that. Like I'm definitely gonna go. I am. I mean, I'm at least trying to make it look like something or you well, know, make I it look. See this action? You have to try that. I, I, I mean, gotta give me. Maybe a big, you need like a little bonsai tree to start with oh my lord please mr miyagi <laughs> i'll channel my my best mr miyagi but yeah no i love topiaries i love going to sculpture gardens i I'm, i find the fast it's such a it's such an interesting art form that i could never ever do i mean i you're talking to a person who can't cut a straight line with scissors or yeah, you know maybe that's for the good maybe there's maybe. no straight lines really needed in this topiary i'm definitely more of a jackson pollock throw paint at the at a canvas <laughs> kind of like it's art but yeah no so i i'm, I'm more fascinated by, by it because because it's, it's just giant 3D art. Like the scope, the the ability to like step back and see it all and then make it come to life is is very impressive. So would you let Edward cut your hair? This is one of my questions I was thinking to myself. Would, would Caroline, who loves her wig so much, trust <laughs> Edward to uh, to snip her locks? Or or your pooches, because your dogs you also uh You know what? I of. would trust Edward to to um to cut my pooches. Um I the issue I have with Edward's cuts is that everyone's hair ends up so short. So since I don't want short hair, then that's problematic for me. So I thought about that though. I really I was thinking about it while he was cutting people's hair and I was like, Man, nobody's hair like they all end up like almost like close to their scalp on one side and like I would not want that. Does a so lot of asymmetrical him. cuts for sure. Yeah. yeah, but 
it's like how short it is. Maybe I can even handle the asymmetrical, but like if you're like buzzing along my ear, like that, it's too short. But uh, but I'm curious though, is it that he cuts it too short or is it because they kept going to him and so they were getting their cut? shorter and shorter. uh, Well, yeah, like, you know, eventually, uh, eventually you run out of hedge to cut, you know, because (laughs) the first time that you see the cut, like that Joyce haircut the first time when she's like, that was the most remarkable experience. Like her hair's not super short. It's just very asymmetrical. It's like kind of shaved on one side. swept to the side. Yes, but it's like very poofy on the other side so i think it was more that they were just get you mentioned it before with like peg where he was just cutting her hair constantly that you just ran out of hedge to cut i think yeah so. i just i don't know i don't think i could handle that part but but happily my the the hedges and the dog go for it i'm happy to do it are you letting edward cut your hair uh, I mean, I don't have a terrible amount of hair. I keep my hair relatively short, but yeah, I would let him go at it, though. I, I've reached an age where I don't mind my hair either looking like Robert Smith's from The Cure, though. I mean, there are plenty of days where I'm going out there looking looking like Edward's hair. So, uh, you know, I, my hair is pretty thick. Uh, it's untidy, but it's pretty thick, so it could do some wild stuff. Uh, Tim Burton couldn't get the guy he wanted to do um, the the props for this movie and, and the, the design for the scissor hands um, because he was already committed oh so he uh so tim burton actually hires uh stan winston to design the scissor hands to bring them to life remember this is all based off of a picture that tim burton drew when he was a teenager right so he hires stan winston stan winston had done the terminator series he had done he ends up going doing the first three jurassic park movies he does aliens which is the sequel to alien he does the first two predator films he does a ton uh he's won like four academy awards in his career like he's the real deal um but so so he and his team end up making Edward's scissor hands and every scissor, every finger is like a different kind of scissor, uh, which is not something I realized before until I read this. And then I went back and looked. So all of like all 10 digits are all different kinds of blades. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of wild how he like put that all together. Um uh, Tim Burton enjoyed working with him so much he's actually going to bring him back when Batman Returns comes around. Uh, Stan Winston's the one who actually designs that horrifyingly gross penguin prosthetic makeup. That's also Stan Winston. So, <laughs> oh, like, Stan. <laughs> right, you and I talked a lot about how gross the penguin, how Danny DeVille looks as the penguin in that movie. That's, that's, that, that Stan Winston look is, is going on there. But the overall, though, uh, Johnny Depp was in the makeup chair, makeup and costume chair, an hour and 45 minutes each day getting his Edward Scissorhands look on uh and refused i mean he's in black leather all all this culture black leather he's in the heavy makeup the heavy prosthetics he refused any kind of uh cooling machine because he really wanted to be in edward's kind of tortured character so he refused any kind of uh cooling machine that presented one problem on the movie uh when they were shooting the end of the end scene where he's running from the villagers uh they had to do it, i think six times he he had to do that run uh he eventually ended up passing out and like threw up like retched all over the set after because oh he was just gosh. dehydrated because he was refusing any kind of cooling uh any oh kind of cooling gosh. technology so he just pushed himself and pushed himself and eventually like his body just gave out from being in that heavy makeup uh yeah so kind of crazy uh johnny depp committed to the bit so i don't think i would ever be at that level i think i would be like i'm thirsty <laughs> method acting is a, is a whole it's yeah, a whole thing man it it's is a whole, a whole thing. thing oof 
So, fast fact for you, Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder dated throughout the filming of this movie, which I feel like you and I like think of them as a couple because of this time frame, I think. Always, yeah. They actually became engaged later that year in 1990. How wild is that? I feel like they should have gotten married. Johnny Depp's world did not turn out well, so I kind of feel like... <laughs> no, I think I think this was... I, and he says, I think he's given interviews since they broke up that he said Winona was like the love of his life. It was like the mm. one great love of his life. He famously, I don't know if you remember this, he had a tattoo on his bicep that said Winona oh, Forever. Oh, yeah. And then do you remember what he changed it to after they broke up? I think it up? was Wino Forever. Yes, he took out the nuh and it became Wino <laughs> Forever. But yeah, no, I mean, there he, he actually blamed their paparazzi and for them having such an open relationship in the public uh, for their split. He thought that they were being smart by being so public with their relationship that it would diminish interest in them. But the opposite happened because they were so open with their relationship and, and shared it into the tabloids. That actually ended up driving a wedge between them because there was just no privacy. They had no peace at all, ever. Um, That's terrible. Yeah. Very Edward Scissorhands. He was maybe chased back from his castle. Maybe they'll find each other again. You know, do you think maybe? I kind of hope that they do. That would be like kind of an amazing, like, you know, like how like. Um, Young love Steve... finds each other again later on in life. No, like Steve from like um, Blue's Clues, like came back and like um... talked to all of us. I kind of feel like Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder like owe us like coming back and like actually getting married and having a family i think it's just because they do seem so much like the male and female versions of each other they just feel right okay they're just like they just feel right it's, this feels so bad that it feels like unfinished business to me it's so weird too because this is such a high point in their careers right i mean this, in in 1990 he has edward sister hands comes out but he also this is also the year that crybaby comes out oh i love me some crybaby i know you do one of my favorite, again one of my bing theater favorite movies and uh, and for Winona, you know, this is in the middle of this. She has this. She has mermaids um, with chair. Uh, sure. Bob Hoskins. And Remember I think uh, Roxy Carmichael, that movie, Roxy, my, uh, oh, yeah. I, I love you, Roxy Carmichael. Is that the name of it? I think also comes out and like all within like a few months of each other. So like her career is also kind of blowing up, too. That had to add a ton of pressure. Like they went from basically being kind of unknown to megastars kind of overnight. You know, he was very popular in 21 Jump Street, but he wasn't like a household name. I feel like he kind of becomes a household name after the string of movies. And she's already becoming a household name by the time she comes and does this. Right. Because she's already popping since like Beetlejuice a couple of years before. So I, I, you have to imagine at their young age and he's like he's a couple of years older than her. I don't know. But they do. They do feel like they should be a couple. Even now I think about them. I, I still think they should be a couple. So. I hope they find each other. I want them to. It feels like unfinished business from my middle school years. I'm like, you guys <laughs> owe us some some time together. Just like get together, have some sort of like, I don't know, just like have lunch together and like let us sit in on that conversation. Like there's just something there that I'm like, please find each other, you guys. And, and they've had tumultuous lives, you know. Remember when she was like shoplifting and stuff? Like, I mean, it was like a whole thing. And then, of course, his whole world, it's a mess. I feel like they need each other. Edward and Kim need to find each other, no matter how old they are. You know what they remind me of, and it maybe gives you hope? Are you going to say something like Benifer? Well, no, no. <laughs> I, no, I was going more like our childhood, or maybe not our childhood, maybe our 20-somethings, but uh, from Boy Meets World. So like how oh, Corey yeah. and Topanga... You yeah. know, they always felt like they should be a couple. And then they eventually, not in real life, but like uh, they came back together 
you know, f- as adults, and they were a couple kind of thing. Like they reunited later in life, kind of thing. You so. know, something super weird. That's so weird that you mentioned that. On like my Facebook feed, it said like "Happy twenty second wedding anniversary, Topanga and Corey." Twenty second. Holy it's smokes! Wild. It's wild. I yeah. Know, right? How but, old are we? <laughs> I, I mean, this movie was thirty one years ago, and we Wowzers. were we were in middle school when it came out. Yeah. But we were so cute. I was finishing. God, I was going probably in Christmas vacation in my seventh grade year mm-hmm. when this movie came out. Uh, the old IS-237. Rachel Carson. Woohoo! <laughs> Shout out to Main Street, Queens. What, what? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's that's it for Fast Facts, maybe. good about our Fast Facts. There yes. were a ton. I, I, had, I had to keep it down. It was you really, did a really good job of, of sprinkling them in amongst this whole thing. It was so six pages good. long, the original Fast Facts sheet. So, well, I, I trimmed it down to two. You did very good trimaging. Yeah, trimaging. So, trimaging. <laughs> I trim, I'm a trimager. So. <laughs> All right, Mike. I am dying to know your Jingle Bell rating. But before you give me that, can you please give me a little clip of next week's movie? I can. Thank you. Here it is. Thanks. Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion is starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. Seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. So, I think this is a movie that you have not seen before, but that has a distinctive voice. So yeah, that's knows. definitely Hugh Grant. I'm, I'm 100% is. on that part. Okay, but I don't know a Hugh Grant Christmas movie, so I am stumped. I don't I don't know. What is it? Love Actually. Oh, I have not seen this movie. Okay, From fascinating. 2003, Love Actually, a stacked cast. <laughs> uh I have a lot of feelings about, and you have oh. to you have to tune in to hear if they're good or bad feelings. But I mean, <laughs> okay. you're talking uh, Hugh Grant, uh, Alan Rickman, Emma Thompson, Laura Linney, oh, a very Ooh. young Andrew Lincoln, Andrew Lincoln before the Rick Grimes beard, uh, Liam Which, Neeson, please, Colin like I Firth. Need it without the beard, please. I know he looks like a little baby monkey, but uh, uh, Kira Knightley, eighteen uh, year old Kira Knightley, uh, is in that movie. It is it is a stacked cast. Only- Deep. 18 in it yeah uh just uh, above board for when you're watching it lately later just to blow your mind uh mm-hmm. kira knightley and the little boy sam who is with liam neeson they're only five years apart in real life in age <laughs> that's hilarious okay yeah, just let that blow your mind because it, okay. will, it will definitely My come up next week will be rattled <laughs> it'll definitely come up next week when we're talking about it but uh yeah 2003's love Actually, love actually is all around. Oh wow! Okay, I'm excited about this. Okay, I I have never seen it, so let's 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 do this. Okay, Mike, I need your jingle bell rating, and I'm going to let you go first because I am going to actually continue to be open minded and listen to your to your rating and really like let it affect me. So. No pressure to you. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think you made a really good point about Anna and the Apocalypse. And I've been I've been sitting here and I've been pondering over that since 
30 minutes ago what I mentioned Since it. you mentioned it, it, it really kind of, it kind of earwormed into my head because you make a good point. That, that is a movie that works as a Christmas movie, but it works at other times of the year too. It doesn't have to be a Christmas time for that really to work. Like they, they make it work because they use like the candy cane weapons and stuff like that, but they didn't have to be, you don't have to watch it at Christmas time to enjoy that. You can watch that movie, particularly at Halloween time, I think, and you, you know, can enjoy any apocalypse just as much. And I gave that movie a six. I like this movie infinitely more than I like and then the apocalypse. And I think it, I think the magic and high fantasy factor combined with the family and love themes and the acceptance themes and the isolation themes, which are all heightened at Christmas time. But I'm putting a lot of stock in the magicness of it, though. The, the setup for it, the, the fairy tale nature of it. This is like a real Grimm's fairy tale, uh, that's being told to us darker than even Beauty and the Beast, because Beauty and the Beast has a much happier ending, you know, at the end, because they wind up together and we're denied that here so i think the grim fairy tale magic factor you know he's the reason it snows in this fake town now the transformative nature of the short time in each other's lives for me all hits heightened at christmas yes you could watch this movie at other times i agree with you it probably makes a great valentine's day movie it's a great movie for for romance on a sad note it's a great movie for if you're feeling un- alone and unaccepted and and you want you know something to believe in that you don't necessarily need others to 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 get along fine i think it works for all of that but i think it also hits particularly hard at Christmas time, or I think it hits better at Christmas time than any other time. If I watch this in June, I don't know that I would like it as much thematically. Um, so I'm giving this a seven, um, and which is lower than I thought I was going to rank it. Um, you, you've, you've deflated some of the Christmasness from this. <laughs> Uh, you know, you, which you, I did not. I don't mean to deflate your love of. I, here's the thing: I'm not, I still love this movie, I'm and I'm taking, still, yeah, and I'm not taking anything away from the movie. Like I don't think that it's. I'm not saying it's any less of a movie because I'm saying I think that there's that there's some themes that are so much louder than Christmas that if you are at Blockbuster, you can't put this under the Christmas section. Like you well, gotta put it so over in here's romance what, or something. Here's else. what I would say to people. I would say if you're looking for an alternative movie to watch at Christmas time, something that is not on the well-worn path of Christmas films, give this one a go. And I think you may feel some crispiness about it uh, in a, in a way like watching gremlins or watching Anna and the apocalypse or watching Watching, um, well, not bad Santa. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. No, kiss, kiss, bang, bang is not a Christmas <laughs> movie in any way, shape, or form. That is a horrible, horrible, horrible. No, trick. but it is this one of those alternate movies. It's, that yes, claim I, they watch. Right, right, right. And it's it, yeah. This is in that category. This goes under the blockbuster heading for alternative Christmas films. Uh, there's another big one. I love that we're saying that. You know how many people are going like blockbuster? What? <laughs> When, when you're on Amazon Prime and you're searching for categories and you search for alternative Christmas, this is definitely, I think, a movie that fits in that category. That's where I'm putting it. That's where it lives in my heart. And, uh, you know, and I'm going to make a nice sculpture of you. So, uh, yeah, I'm giving it a seven. Uh, but in my heart, it rates higher. 
Love it. Okay, I am going to give this one six Jingle Bells because I do love the themes that it has, including things like being able to accept yourself and being able to be part of the group to the point that you can deal with it, especially at the holidays. I think this is very fair, very fair. Like you may not be into it for an eight hour, you know, Christmas fest. You may need to come in for like an hour, exchange some gifts and get out. Like you may be the Edward Scissorhands of your fam. And that's great. That's wonderful. You've got talents and skills and stuff that everyone else really marvels at, but it might not just be where you have to be with everybody all the time and have to do everything the way that everyone else does it. I love that they don't make him a sulking, sad, crabby beast at the end because that would have been so easy to do. And the fact that he could be alone and still happy is a really wonderful message. I think especially if you're going to say at Christmas time, at the holidays, when being around other people really there's this like idea that that's paramount. Like you have to be around others or else somehow you're doing it wrong. I think this is a great message. That's like, you can actually be alone and be doing it perfectly. And and that alone, a message of acceptance, I will give you some Christmas love for that. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I think, I think next time you watch this movie and I hope you watch it one day, maybe you watch it with the kids. They want to watch it. I hope you watch it around Christmas time and, and, and let it wash over you a little bit. I, I think, I think if you hit watch this, maybe if the, the stars are aligned and the, the fire is crackling <laughs> just right, you're, you're going to watch this and be like, you know what? I, I, I smell, I smell, I smell snow in the air. Oh, that's a very lore-like Gilmore of you. You know, I <laughs> there, there, there's something about this movie that for me that it's it's about life experience. If I had seen this as a middle schooler and just you talked to me just then, I maybe would lean into this Christmas totally. My having three special needs kids, I can't see this movie for other things what you're seeing. Like I just can't. I see the I see the part of the group that's all the same and the one who isn't the same. Try Trying to figure out where they fit in in the world. And I'm, I just because of my own life experience, I'm not probably likely going to be able to see it with the pureness that you're seeing it. I, mm. I wish that I could. I, I, you know, I wish I could like dial it back, but I, I don't think for myself I'm going to be able to, but I really encourage our listeners to check it out and like see where do they land on this scale? Is it, is it more, are they leaning into the fantasy and the, and the magic, which I still, I 100% love, you know, or are you finding this more about, you know, self-awareness and differences and, you know, accepting yourself and being okay to not be like everyone else. Like, where are you falling sort of on the scale of everything? This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. If you wouldn't mind going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe, that would be fantastic. And while you're there hitting that subscribe button, if you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be fantastic of you because otherwise we're going to have to come to your house and stab your water bed until it leaks and we'll avoid all sorts of humiliation and discomfort <laughs> oh my gosh thanks for listening thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production pod clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com rate review and subscribe to our podcast feeds on apple podcasts Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.